Hi and welcome to the CU20 podcast. We are a group of young adults living in Montreal who meet together to talk about what it means to be a Christian. The podcast today is a sermon from our series on the basic beliefs of Christianity. Hope you enjoy. There's a story of an old preacher, it's a true story actually, of a, of a preacher who uh, had been, I guess, in the ministry for many, many decades, and he had become a professor of, I guess, preaching in layman's terms, uh, at a Christian university. And what he would do is a lot of his students were actually uh, pastors as well. This was sort of a course. The course he would do was sort of more kind of higher level. So people who were already in the ministry would come just to hone their skills. And he, the class was small enough that he would meet one-on-one with the students uh, sort of once in a while. And his preference was to meet with them on Monday morning after they had preached on Sunday. And... As the story goes, he would sit down with them and he would always ask them the same question. He would sit down and say, what did you give the people to believe last Sunday? The question is interesting because it, by honing in on that one word, believe, it negates the other words that uh, we often fall into as preachers. So it would be very easy to say, what did you give the people to do? Or what kind of conviction did you kind of try to bring? What challenge did you bring to them? He said, what did you give the people to believe? And it's important, I think, that we identify that as an incredibly essential aspect of what it means to preach the gospel. Because ultimately, it's not anything that we do. If you preach the gospel and the the sense of... uh, uh, I guess the sense of duty falls on the person. Now we must go and do something uh, rather than just sort of repent and believe. Uh, no, we need to go work in some way. Well, that, that's, that's wrong. You misunderstood it. You know, the, the things that change the world, the things that change the world because they change societies and the reason they change society is because they change people are ideas understanding, gaining of insight, gaining of understanding, a realization is what changes the world ultimately. It's the most powerful thing we have seen change the world over and over again. It's ideas, it's belief. Ideas are what began slavery. Ideas are actually what ended slavery as well, if you think about it in that way. Ideas are incredibly important. And when we're looking at the resurrection, what we're looking at is something in which the right response to it It's not something that we do, but something that we come to realize. And in coming to realize, it actually transforms us. So we're looking at the resurrection today as the culmination of a three-part look at the life and ministry and character of Jesus. And we've looked so far, beginning at his claims, which were stupendous, these extraordinary, amazing claims. And we looked at, you know, what did he actually claim? And then we looked at his character, and do, does his character match his claims? If he claims to be God, then he must be godly in the sense of holy and perfect. And does his character line up with that? And we saw that evidence points to the fact that he had exemplary character that seemed to fall in line with the bold claims that he made. And today we're looking at his alleged resurrection from the dead. And this, when you look at it, would 
kind of blow the case right out of the water with you know, showing Jesus Christ to be utterly unique, utterly distinctive, and absolutely pivotal in terms of all of world history. If this is shown to be true, no one would deny that this changes everything. It would also line up with his claims and with his actions. If he claims to be divine and his actions sort of speak to a character that seems above anyone else who's ever lived, then his departure from the world, uh, you would assume, would be something quite supernatural in nature. If he just kind of died, it would just kind of be a flat kind of ending to all of it, wouldn't it? <laughs> You're like, wow, Jesus is amazing. Oh, he's gone. Like, that would be kind of, yeah, it'd be kind of weird to end that way, wouldn't it? But if he didn't, if there was a supernatural departure from this world, you would say, well, that falls right in line with what we would expect a person who is saying what he's saying, doing what he's doing, and living the kind of life that he lives. And so there's this kind of back and forth strengthening that happens here, where when you look at the resurrection, uh, the resurrection strengthens previous evidence that we have that Jesus Christ is unique, you know, by, by this being kind of the cherry on top, that kind of we look back at everything else that's come before it in a new light, and that's certainly what the disciples did. But it's also strengthened by the evidence that's come before it. The fact that he did come back from the grave isn't out of, it shouldn't be divorced from context. The context there is actually incredibly important. There's a skeptic who uh, asked this apologist once, and I, I, I apologize, I forget who told the story, but there was an apologist who told the story of someone who asked him, you know, you, know, you, you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but it's such a ridiculous claim. He said, if I told you I rose from the dead, would you believe me? And the apologist said, well, if you had lived the kind of life that Jesus Christ had lived, if you had predicted that you would in fact raise you know, be raised from the dead, uh, and if you not just sort of were revived, but you went on to never die again, then absolutely, yeah, I would believe you. Like, that would be something really overwhelmingly strong in terms of evidence, and, and that's the context we're dealing with here. We're dealing with Jesus who didn't just happen to rise from the dead, but it was very much in fitting with his expectation of what would happen, his proclamation of what would happen, and it fits in with a life that we've seen so far that is just defined by the extraordinary. And so we see this strengthening coming into it from previously as well. But the claim is huge. If Jesus Christ did actually do this, this is massive. This changes everything. And so do we have reason to believe in this? And we're going to break it down the same way that the, the book chapter did, the chapter, I think, three or four of the, uh, the book. And so there's four main things we're going to look at in terms of evidence. The first being, okay, if Jesus Christ did, raise from the, uh, did rise from the dead, then where's the body? And the body is gone. Even the authorities kind of admitted or conceded to the fact that the body wasn't there anymore. I would imagine it would be a very easy thing to disprove uh, if you can just say, there he is kick him, he's dead, like, he's right there. Like, they couldn't do that. They had to concede that, in fact, the, the body of Christ was gone. And it wasn't as if they were just simply mistaken about that fact. The, you know, the location of his grave was unmistakable. And he certainly was dead. It's like the idea that he just sort of fainted uh, or went into a coma and then came out of it at a later date uh, was, not, number one, like, medically absurd. Uh, and number two, wouldn't fit in with the, all the other evidence we have uh, of his resurrection appearances, appearing to be well and fine and great and, and powerful 
you would expect if he did in any way survive the crucifixion and then, you know, 36 some hours in a cold, dark, damp tomb with no water or food, he wouldn't be the kind of, in the kind of state that would inspire anybody, shall we say. He would be a wreck. And that's certainly not what we have here. We also have the fact, and we'll get into that in a bit later, but that the grave clothes were undisturbed. So if there was a theft of the body, it was a very strange kind of thing that they would leave the grave clothes behind and in a way that they were completely, perfectly undisturbed as well. It, that's a, a piece of evidence that wouldn't fit in with that theory. Also, how on earth would they get to the, the body in the first place? The last one being like, okay, if the body's gone, maybe the disciples took it. But they would have no means to take it. They certainly couldn't get into the tomb themselves without a massive you know, struggle uh, that would be very, very you know, loud and evident. Uh, but also, they have no motivation to do it. Why would they want to do this, considering they're the ones who would later go on to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ and go on to die for their faith? Why would they die for something that they knew was a lie? John Stott says in that chapter, they may have been deceived, if you like, but they were not deceivers. Hypocrites and martyrs are not made of the same stuff. Certainly no one, you wouldn't expect anyone to die for their own deception. It just doesn't fit the bill at all. And so you have to deal with the fact that the, the body was gone and there's no adequate explanation that seems to fit in with all of the implications of, of the fact that it's gone and what that would mean. Secondly, you look at the, he looked at uh, the grave clothes were undisturbed. And I'll admit that this is not something that I really knew much about until reading this chapter. It is very fascinating to look at it. So John chapter 20, verse 6 to 8 is where you see the account of what was going on with the grave clothes. Uh, I'll read it here. It says, Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived uh, and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Now, I, I read that, and I'm grateful for John Stott because he kind of goes into the detail that it's not immediately apparent in the English translation. But when you look at it in the original language, it's trying to describe a scene in which you'd expect, if you can picture in your head, a body lying wrapped up in cloth and, and the head being wrapped up in a separate piece of linen, as was the custom. Uh, and you can imagine this thing, a still kind of figure lying wrapped in cloth, and all of a sudden the content of that, the body itself, would be gone. It would just kind of pass through it. And now these clothes would be kind of undisturbed, but kind of flat fall in on themselves as a result, but not be undisturbed. So the original language gave this impression that they were still kind of wrapped the way you would expect and still kind of lying in the position that you would expect. So they were undisturbed in that way. And this is a visible testament to what we're dealing with here. We're not dealing with simply a, a resuscitation. It wasn't as if Jesus miraculously was resuscitated and kind of went from a state of being dead to being alive, uh, but he went to kind of a new way of being alive, one in which isn't characterized by the same way uh, that we, the same limitations that we have. Uh, you can picture Jesus coming back to life and all of a sudden, you know, his arms and legs are stuck by his side. Like, what's he going to do next? He's got to wriggle around like a worm to try to get out. Like, that was kind of what would have been the case. And, and so, no, it's not like this, he would have to, you know, really struggle to get out of it and fall on the floor and get up again. And, uh, you know, that would have been aside from comical, really strange as well. That's not what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with something completely 
different and, and above that, John Stott says, uh, no, we do not believe that he returned to this life. He had not recovered consciousness after a faint. He had died and he rose again. His was a resurrection, not a resuscitation. We believe that he passed miraculously from death into an altogether new sphere of existence. And so the, the grave clothes being as they are is, you know, gives this picture of what's taken place is utterly unique. And then the fact that, you know, adding to that, that Jesus was seen after his death, you know, as alive and well, John says there was 10, different, 10 separate appearances described throughout the Gospels, with some of them being many people witnessing uh, this resurrected Jesus at once. You know, lots of people, you know, Paul goes on to say there was an account of 500 people seeing Christ at one time. Over a period of 40 days, many convincing proofs being given to the disciples of the fact that he is alive. And the accounts themselves of the, the um, I guess, the accounts of the resurrected Christ that we see uh, certainly bear the hallmarks of honesty. They don't seem to be made up. When things are made up, so they, they kind of follow a certain pattern. They, they're very utilitarian. They're like, well, you know, that's just everything we say kind of is to the point. It's, it's kind of giving you only what you need to know here because that's the way that people make up stories. But this one, these accounts don't seem to be that way. There are superfluous details added that don't seem to serve any purpose except for the fact of being true. Also, on top of that, there's a lot of things that you would consider sort of bad PR. Like they, they add... Uh, elements to the story that wouldn't be a good thing to speak about unless they were actually true and you're just being honest. The one that is pointed to is the fact that in every single account, women were the first one to be the witnesses uh, of Jesus Christ's uh, resurrection, the first ones to see it. And in that time and, and day, women were not considered reliable witnesses. Women were, their, their testimony wasn't even heard in court because they were just not considered to be reliable. And so if you're making up stories, you wouldn't choose to be, have women to be the ones to discover the body. So the fact that in all cases and throughout all four Gospels, it is women who discover it first, show that this wouldn't be added unless it was true. There's a great uh, New Testament scholar named Gary Habermas. And I want to read a, quite a long quote. There's two quotes that I want to read from you, uh, for you from him. Uh, but both of them are to the same end of him just saying, look, even if even skeptics concede to the fact that Jesus appeared to be alive after his death, even those who don't believe in the resurrection concede that point. And so he says this, he says, even the highly critical New Testament scholar Rudolf Bultmann agreed that the historical criticism can establish the fact that the first disciples came to believe in the resurrection and that they thought that they had seen the risen Jesus. Atheistic New Testament scholar Gerd Ludman concludes, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences of Jesus' death uh, in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Paula Friedrichsen of Boston University comments, I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus. That is what they say and then all the historical evidence we have seen afterwards attest to their conviction that that is what they saw. I'm not saying that they really did see the raised Jesus. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw. But I do know that as a historian, they must have seen something. 
And then he goes on to say this, there is a virtual consensus among scholars who study Jesus' resurrection that subsequent to the death by crucifixion, his disciples really believed that he appeared to them risen from the dead. This conclusion has been reached by the data that suggests that number one, the disciples themselves claimed that the risen Jesus had appeared to them. And number two, subsequent to Jesus' death by crucifixion, his disciples were radically transformed from the fearful, cowering individuals who denied and abandoned him at his arrest and execution into bold proclaimers of the gospel of the risen Lord. They remained steadfast in the face of imprisonment, torture, and martyrdom. It is very clear that they sincerely believed that Jesus rose from the dead. And that dovetails nicely into the last of the four evidences that uh, John Stott presents, which is the disciples were changed. We have to have something that can account for all four of these things, the missing body, the undisturbed uh, grave clothes, the fact of the post-death uh, you know, witnesses and accounts, and the transformation of the disciples, who go, as Gary, Gary Habermas says, from these cowering, you know, very much in despair, very much fearful and devastated people who had all but abandoned Christ uh, prior to his conviction, now to these, these world changes, these ones who boldly proclaim the resurrected Christ who are ready to die for him and sh show such conviction and such aptitude that they, kind of, they turn the world on their head. And so this is the four streams of evidence that are pointed to. There are more. And if you want to look at this really in depth, I do recommend the book, The Case for Christ, by Lee Strobel. It's certainly not the most scholarly work out there. There are far more scholarly works out there, but it's very, uh, very reachable. You know, the, the, you know, you can be kind of a person who's unfamiliar with the subject, and it's very easy to digest, easy to get into. And so The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, I would recommend as a great starting point when you're looking at who Jesus was and evidence to back up his claims. Uh, and it, it goes a lot into the resurrection. So what we're going to do now uh, is spend the rest of our time just looking at something that can help us to take hold of this truth. Because you can establish truth also all well and good, but then you've got to kind of a, a so what? So what? If Jesus rose from the dead, so what? And that's what I want to look at now. So John chapter 20, verse 24 to 31 is the part of the story I want to focus on. And it tells the story of Jesus appearing to Thomas. Thomas was the last of the 12 disciples to see the risen Jesus Christ. I guess that's not technically true. He's the last of the living disciples to see the resurrected Christ. Judas was no longer alive. So verse 24 of John chapter 20. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. He said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and I put my finger where the nails were, and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But they are written so that but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that, that by believing you may have life in his name. So this is a story of this kind of massive turnaround in the life and the thinking of Thomas. He, and it's all pivoted around the, the encounter of the risen Christ that prior to this, Thomas hadn't seen Jesus raised from the dead and now he has. So why did Jesus do this for Thomas? Why did he give him this sort of this special moment of, of revelation? It certainly shouldn't be considered that he only did it to help Thomas believe. Jesus is full of compassion. Certainly he did want Thomas to believe, and I think he was uh, willing to acquiesce to that, you know, to that doubt. But there's far more going on there. We can see that there's far more going on because Jesus actually scolds, he rebukes Thomas in this for not believing. Saying, look, the apostles, the other disciples have been telling you this. Why did you not believe? But there's more to it than that. You see, in order to be an apostle, you had to have witnessed the resurrected Christ. That was one of the conditions of what it meant to be called an apostle. And so Thomas has been given this preferential treatment, this royal treatment, so that he might serve as an apostle. And so he, he's considered one of the twelve, it says it at the beginning. He, he is considered, you know, he, he should, he ought to be a disciple, an apostle. And so Jesus gives him this moment in order to give him the status, the credentials as an apostle. And if you take that a step further to say, why is it necessary for someone to witness the resurrected Christ in order to be considered an apostle? It's because the resurrection is the pivotal moment that needs to be preached. You see, Thomas would have been very, very familiar with all of the teachings of Jesus. He had traveled with Jesus the whole time. He had bared witness to the countless sermons that Jesus had preached beforehand. He must have been very familiar with the words of Christ. But in order to go out and bear accurate and faithful witness to what it is that Jesus Christ is all about, it's not enough to just know the teaching. You have to know the resurrection. You have to preach the resurrection because the teaching alone is not the main message. You need to have within it the historical fact of the resurrection. You need the fact that God has broken into this world. He has torn a hole into the fabric of our reality and come into it and done something that we need to pay attention to done something that, will, that has changed the course of human history. It will culminate in, his, in the completion of what he started on that day. That it's pivotal. And if you try to reduce Christianity, you try to take the resurrection out of it and simply proclaim the teachings of Christ, you've really gutted the entire of the Christian faith. Like it doesn't have any power anymore. It certainly doesn't have the characteristic power that it claims to have. And so to to preach Christianity means you need to preach the fact of the resurrection because this changes everything. We see from the very earliest sermons that the apostles preach, right in the beginning of the book of Acts, they have the resurrection as front and center of their preaching. The resurrection at that first sermon was the vindication that reversed the human decision about who Jesus was and placed him back on the pedestal that he deserves, that he is the Messiah. And he is the one to which we need to defer and bow down to. It's hugely important. It's absolutely pivotal for so, so many reasons. And we're not going to have time to go into them. Perhaps that's something you can explore in your small groups. But the resurrection 
filters out into all different ways of us approaching God, approaching uh, our hope for the future, our relationship to the past and present. It goes into all different areas of life. Essentially, in a nutshell, it changes the message of the religion of Christianity from anything that could be summarized as do your best or try really hard to instead be uh, built upon a faith assumption which is trust in Him. Not trust in yourself, not trust in your works, trust in Him and trust in His finished works. Historically speaking, we know that Christianity spread rapidly through those who were poor and oppressed. That was the demographic who grabbed hold of the message. Do you think that a morality message has the power to grab the poor and oppressed? Do you think those who are already struggling in a sense of hopelessness about the world, a sense of absolute abject poverty, if you go to them and say, you know what you need to do? You need to love each other. You need to tr you know, try hard. You think they're going to take hold of that message and say, oh, thank you. I've been wondering about the missing piece in my life that kept me back this whole time, and that's what it is. I just need to try harder. Of course not. This doesn't give them hope. This doesn't give them joy. This doesn't give them anything to base their life on. What gives them hope is the fact that to the poor and oppressed, you bring the finished work of Jesus. You bring all the deeds that he has done. And historians really do speculate as to why it is that Christianity spread so rapidly in the ancient world and actually today continue to spread so rapidly in certain communities. You look at like Korea over the last hundred years, Christianity has gone from less than 1% to the dominant religion. It's absolutely absurd how quickly that's, that's happened. And, and that's not the only time it's happened. It's happened like that again and again and again through history, spreading through the marginalized, spreading through the oppressed. And historians ponder as to what it is that continues to do this. And one of the best answers they keep coming to is that it gave something that no other religion or worldview offered it, offered, could offer to the people. And that something was grace. It was grace. It was the fact that you could be made have a right standing relationship with God, that you could know where you stand with God, and that you could stand favorably with Him based on somebody else's work, that He would look upon you with favor based upon the work of Christ. That's grace, and that is what was being offered here, and that was totally and utterly unique, and it's only bought through the resurrection. It's only bought through the power of the it is finished statement of Christ on the cross, which is then vindicated at the resurrection to say, you know, you, you look back at the past and you can see all my sins now look differently because I look at the resurrection and I can see that the sacrifice for, for my sins was accepted. That Christ who died for my sins, that that was a worthy sacrifice and that he was vindicated for that. It changes my present. The resurrection changes my present because I don't look at Jesus Christ merely as an example to follow. But he's alive. He is living. And because he is living, I can have an actual relationship with him. He can come into my life and transform me. And there's power in that. That old chestnut, you know, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Well, it is a religion, but it's also a relationship. And that relationship is only possible because we're talking about a resurrected Savior. And it changes the way that I look at my future because now resurrection means that 
as Christ was resurrected, so I will be resurrected too. So when I look, my hope for heaven is shaped by this. The idea of heaven, biblically speaking, is not us all going up somewhere in the clouds to be in cloud land. It's actually here. It's this world. It's this world renewed and redeemed. It's us, our very selves, renewed and redeemed. It's community like what we're experiencing, renewed and redeemed. It means that God cares an awful lot about this world. It means a lot of things, but it certainly means that too. So it changes the way we look at the future. So it changes my past, my present, and my future. And we look at Thomas here, who's encountering the resurrected Lord, and he gives the most the highest declaration that we have anywhere in the Gospels of the identity of Jesus Christ. He says, my Lord and my God. That's his response to seeing Jesus. That's the greatest profession of faith we have in all of the four Gospels. He knows now that Jesus is the one that he can rest his life on, that Jesus is the one that can be my everything and ought to be my everything. And so he gives this enormous proclamation of faith. The resurrection builds for us the foundation of grace. It changes our very mindset towards God from a you-do kind of attitude to a it is done. He has done it. It brings you into right-standing relationship with God without a shadow of uncertainty that should remain. Francis Chan writes this, he says, there is nothing better than being absolutely sure that the most powerful being in the universe adores you as his own, <clears throat> as his own child. That's the type of confidence that the resurrection brings because it's not on your righteousness, it's on his. Grace is the difference between serving as a child and serving as a stressed out, guilt-ridden slave. You can serve God as a stressed out, guilt-ridden slave, but you will not be a Christian if you do. You will be a Christian if you serve him as a child. It offers us intimacy. It offers us security. It offers us encouragement. When Thomas sees this wounded, victorious Savior, it absolutely transforms him. You need to be looking at your wounded Savior too. And that's kind of where I want to leave you today, with something to believe. There's a great uh, analogy I heard last week sometime, where someone said, you know that phrase that people talk about when they talk about really decadent desserts? And they, they'll say something like, oh, you know, that chocolate cake. You just need to look at it and it makes you fat. You know that kind of thing? For me, it's like Krispy Kreme donuts. All I need to do is look at that and I'll get fat. That metaphor, great as it is, is actually kind of true in a sense when you look at how the gospel works. Because all we actually need to do is look with love at our Savior and it begins to transform us. Looking at Jesus with love, looking at his wounds, melts and transforms us to look at him and to know God did that for me absolutely transforms you. And that's where you begin as a Christian, by looking, by hoping, by pondering. It begins to transform us from that point. And so believe this week.
Let's pray together. God, and when I say God, I, I mean you, Jesus. We thank you. We thank you for the absolute pain that you went through. We thank you that you went through it for us. And we thank you that you rose from that grave. We thank you that you've placed our life upon you, the rock. We are so unworthy of you. And we're so grateful that you came and did what you did for us. God, for anyone who's here that's still kind of like Thomas, not ready, not willing to believe, I know that an encounter from you will change it all. So we ask, Lord, that you convict them and change them and meet them. Help us, Lord, to do that. Help us to be faithful witnesses to each other and to the world around us, as is your will. May we be accurate. May we be good, shining lights. I pray, Lord, that you transform us as we marvel at you. May you transform us from the inside out. We thank you. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about us, you can find us on the website peoplesmontreal.org. There you'll find information about where and when we meet, as well as a catalogue of past sermons and other resources. Hope to see you soon.